book of Revelation, chapter 3, and beginning at verse 7, and let's uh, read this together. It is on the screen for those of you who may need that, okay? Revelation, chapter 3, and verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come down Oh, come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Lord, help us today to be humble, to be teachable, to be eager and hungry for your truth, to see the implications of the gospel, Lord, that are Uh, coming through this passage that are teaching us and molding us and shaping us to be like your son, Jesus Christ. We ask now for your guidance and your help in your precious name. Amen. And I'm going to invite Dennis, who I got to know on this trip, a man who loves the word, and I think uh, you're going to be blessed this morning. Dennis, come. Thanks. Good morning. Let me turn to Revelation chapter three. All right. I'm gonna pray before I open the word, uh, just uh, a way to, for me to focus and to make sure that it's about the Lord, not about the sermon per se. So let's pray. Father, good morning. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We just ask you in these few moments that you would just have your way with us, have your way with me, have your way with our hearts, Lord. We want to leave this place not just more informed, but transformed. So may you use the gospel, may you use your word to change our hearts to be more like Christ. We love you, Lord. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your resurrection. We love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, the letter to the Church of Philadelphia is the sixth letter of the seven letters that Jesus writes to his churches. As a great shepherd, Jesus takes care of his flock, especially this small but faithful flock in the city of Philadelphia. This letter has five sections. We're gonna go one by one. So if you have your outline, you can fill this in. The first is description of Jesus. That's verse seven, description. Second, faithfulness to Jesus, verses 8b and 10a. Number three, encouragement from Jesus, verses 8 through 10. 
four, command from Jesus, verse 11, and finally, reward from Jesus, verse 12. Now, why is my outline about Jesus and necessarily about the church of Philadelphia? Well, first of all, he is the author of this letter. Secondly, it's his church. And thirdly, if you look at the passage, you'll notice the I know or I will statements over and over. So we know that it's Jesus that produces the encouragement and the promises for his church. If we make this sermon about the small church in Philadelphia and disregard Christ as the main focus, we miss the whole point of this letter and the whole Bible altogether. You may have noticed as well that there are no rebukes to this church, no harsh words, no discipline from Jesus to this small church. And of the seven churches, there are only two churches that receive only praise from Christ, and this is one of those churches. So our first section, description of Jesus, verse seven. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. A, subpoint. Jesus holy and true. First of all, Jesus is holy. This is a name he shares with God the Father. Let's go to Isaiah chapter six, where God calls Isaiah to be a prophet. The very popular uh, phrase. Isaiah 6, verse 3. Actually, this is read verse 1, following. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. There is only one God, the triune God of the Bible, and he is holy, which means he is in a completely different category, completely set apart from his creation. There is no comparison. For a small church in the midst of persecution, this is great, great encouragement. Secondly, Jesus is the true one. Not only is Jesus correct and accurate in all of his writings and all of what he does, he is also truly, genuinely, and ultimately God. He is the most worthy to be trusted in. Both of these attributes of Christ are crucial for the believers in Philadelphia to know because this city was known for its Greek temples. Since the city... uh, was known for its wine, they had a temple dedicated to the god of wine, Dionysus, from which we get the name Dennis. So I think it's appropriate. <laughs> Little side note. <laughs> of course, they had other gods, I just want to point at that one. At one time in its history, the city was called Little Athens, so you know that had great Greek influence. There were many deities and gods to worship in this city, but Jesus is the one and only. He is the Alpha Omega. He is the beginning and the end. The King of kings and Lord of lords. Knowing that their God is above all so-called gods gives them great encouragement and comfort to be faithful even when they are 
the minority in a culture that is hostile to their worldview. Sound familiar? <laughs> Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. The city of Corinth is very similar in that respect to the city of Philadelphia. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5 and 6. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Letter B. Jesus is the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. To be honest, when I first read this passage, this was the first time I'd have ever heard of the key of David. But there's another mention of the key of David in the Bible, and it's found in Isaiah 22, 22. In context, Eliakim is promoted to a high managerial position in the kingdom of Israel. And he's given the key of David as a symbol of authority and power. When your boss gives you the keys to the office, you're given control, you're given access that no other employees have besides you. So despite this, Eliakim was unable to bear the weight of his God-given responsibility. In our passage in Revelation 3, Jesus is a true and better Eliakim because he takes upon himself the responsibility and weight of sin in order to bring salvation. With this key, Whatever he opens, no one will be able to close and vice versa. So whatever decision Jesus makes, no one can thwart. He decides who is included in the kingdom of heaven. Section two, faithfulness to Jesus, verses eight, B, and 10A. Let me read that for you real quick. Verse eight, B. I know that you have a little power and yet you have kept my word, you have not denied my name. Verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you. The church in Philadelphia is the faithful church among the seven churches mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3. In verse 8, Jesus says, I know you have but little power. The church was small in number and likely small in influence and strength. The city was small partially due to the fact that the city lied on an earthquake fault line. So they experienced a very, very common occurrence of earthquakes. And in AD 17, an earthquake destroyed the city and was rebuilt later. So even though they were a small church, Jesus says, you have kept my word and not denied my name. What makes a church faithful? Is it by wearing Christian t-shirts and obeying most of the Ten Commandments? I would say not. <laughs> is it by knowing a lot of Bible doctrine or being able to quote a lot of Bible verses? No, not necessarily. Faithfulness is not achieved just because we think we're doing okay. Faithfulness is achieved by what Jesus says is faithfulness. We can be faithful to a lot of different things, a lot of good things, especially your spouse. But Jesus says that faithfulness is based ultimately on two things, his word and his name. 
So let's look at the first one. What does it look like to keep the teachings of Christ? In the Greek, the word to keep means guarding, protecting, holding, obeying. The phrase, keep my words, is very common in the writings of John, who is the writer of the book of Revelation. A genuine believer not only obeys the word, which in our context is the Bible, but wants to understand it better and finds it precious when others oppose it. Faithfulness is a lifestyle. It's a continued holding on to the word. A great word from John that describes this is abide. We are to abide in his word. A quote from D.A. Carson. Such words must so lodge in the disciple's mind and heart that conformity to Christ, obedience to Christ, is the most natural thing in the world. So we know that it looks to keep the words of Christ looks like abiding, but how are we able to keep the teachings of Christ? Let's go to John 14, 24. John writes, in Jesus' words, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Another quote from D.A. Carson, and the final quote from him. (laughs) Mere duty will not generate obedience to Christ. Only love for him can do that. So we must love him in order to obey him. What kind of marriage do you think you have if your spouse tells you, I'm faithful to you, but I don't love you. So we want to be able to abide in Christ, pray and ask God to give you a greater heart to love him better. So that in time, obedience becomes a joy to follow Christ. Right, that's what love does. And of course, the greatest expression of love is the gospel. So as you take in the gospel as a believer, you're able to love him better. Number two, how do you keep the name of Jesus? As the text says in Revelation 3, it is by not denying him. Right, so how do you not deny Christ? There are two ways that we can deny Christ. The first is we can deny him through our works, through our lives. Titus 1.16 says this. They profess to know God, right? So they claim to be followers of Christ, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So you notice that in our lives, we're not just denying a worldview or philosophy or a belief system, we're actually denying Christ. Right? Christianity is about Christ, not just our belief system. Secondly, we can deny him to be Lord. 1 John 2, verse 22 says, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. So when the church is being persecuted, it will come down to, will we stand for the name and word of Christ? Based on the Supreme Court rulings recently, we will be challenged in greater ways to not keep the word of God. Will we be faithful? Who will we obey? 
Third section, encouragement from Jesus, verses eight through 10. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Jesus knows the works of his church, so he knows how to encourage his church. And he does so in this passage by providing three promises. Three promises that will build up his church in the midst of persecution. First promise is in verse eight. I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Now there are a couple options for what the open door could mean. Now, a lot of commentaries would say that this open door has to do with the open door of gospel ministry. And if you look at the New Testament, the most commonly used way of this phrase is actually the gospel ministry. But I would say on the, in this context, the open door is actually the kingdom of heaven. Let me explain why. First of all, the key of David in verse seven relates to the kingdom of heaven. If Jesus is a greater, a true and better like him, who not only manages the kingdom of Israel, but manages the kingdom of heaven, then that would be so. Number two, the reward in verse 12 also relates to the kingdom of heaven. We notice the verbiage, new Jerusalem. Three, the next chapter in verse four, or verse one of chapter four, there is a door. It's a door into the kingdom of heaven. So to be persecuted is to be rejected. Jesus telling the church of Philadelphia that although you are rejected by your culture, I have received you. I have an open door for you. You are welcomed into my kingdom, the only kingdom of God. Second promise. I will make those of the synagogue of Satan bow down before your feet, verse nine. Now with that phrase, synagogue of Satan, we need to look at what that means. And this is not the first time that John writes this phrase in Revelation. The context kind of gives insights. It says that the synagogue of Satan is actually lying Jews who they think they're God's chosen people just because they're Jews through ethnicity but they're truly not God's chosen people. They think they are, but they're not. And so the church of Philadelphia was not only receiving persecution from the Greek culture around them, but from the Jews as well. These Jews were hostile to the church, possibly due to the high number of Jewish converts in their congregation. They would tell the church that you're not God's chosen, we are. As a result, Jesus will make them bow down at their feet. Jesus is powerful enough to make people bow down. And he will most certainly cause people to bow down before him. In Philippians 2, Paul writes what's called the hymn of Christ. And at the end of verse 9, he says, Therefore, which is based on the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, God has highly exalted him 
and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So now we see two things, right? People bowing down to the believers and people bowing down to Jesus. Well, based on scripture, God will not share his glory with another. Jesus isn't saying that Jews will worship the believers in Philadelphia. He is saying that they will bow down like servants. See, if you're a Jew, you expect the Gentiles to bow down to you, but no. Jesus will do the opposite. They will, he will make his church, um, I guess, be respected by the Jewish people that persecute them. And not only that, it says in the word, they will learn that Jesus has great love for his church. Do you notice that Jesus is flexing his muscle for this small but faithful church? Third promise, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. To be honest, this is a very tough uh, sentence to interpret, so I'm going to defer to the ESV study Bible notes. (laughs) Because this trial is coming on the whole world, it seems that before the final consummation, Revelation envisions a brief future period of intensified persecution for the church and of escalating manifestations of God's wrath against those who dwell on the earth, a phrase designating rebellious humanity. Jesus does not promise to spare believers from suffering or martyrdom, but to shield them from his wrath and to transform martyrdom into triumph. Many who hold a pre-tribulation rapture position believe that this verse means Christ will take them out of the world before a literal great tribulation period begins. Other interpreters, however, see this as God's promise to safeguard and remain faithful to believers who endure patiently in the midst of the hour of trial that is coming, though it does not imply that he will take believers out of the world at that time. So you have two options. (laughs) The point is, this church has kept Jesus' word about patient endurance, therefore, Jesus will keep them and protect his church. In the end, the people who, who are hostile to his church will not have the last say. They will not win, and the ending of Jude has a similar promise. In verses 25 and 24 and 25 of Jude says this, now to him, which is Christ, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen. When situations are tough for the church, we must hold on to the promises of God. Jesus will protect his church, but it doesn't mean that he won't allow persecution to take place. And the church will not ultimately be delivered until it enters glory. Section four, command from Jesus, verse 11. I am coming soon. Is that encouragement for the church? Hold fast what you have, 
so that no one may seize your crown. In this letter, the only command, the only thing that Jesus asks his church is to hold fast. What is he referring to? It's the gospel. The phrase hold fast in the New Testament is most commonly used in reference to the message or hope of the gospel. Now, if you were to do your own word study, you would notice that there's a few instances of marriage, but for the most part, it has to do with the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 15, 2, Paul writes, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, and the word in this context is gospel, Philippians 2, 16, holding fast to the word of life, Hebrews 3, 6, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope, Hebrews 4, 14, let's hold fast our confession, Hebrews 6, 18, to hold fast to the hope set before us. And this is my favorite one. This is the whole entire verse. Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So how can the church hold fast without wavering? Because Jesus is faithful. We can be faithful because Jesus is faithful. So in asking the church to hold fast, he is literally asking the church to have a firm grasp of the gospel. He wants his church to continually holding on to the gospel. This means that the, the gospel is not something just for the beginning of the believer and then we move on in our discipleship to more advanced doctrines. The church is to continue in the gospel. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, which we read this morning, verse one, we are to take our stand in the gospel. In the Greek, that's in the perfect tense, which means it's a past action that has permanent effects. We are to stand in the gospel, which means we are to never move away from the gospel. The gospel is not the door into the Christian life. The gospel is the entire house with Christ in the center. He's reminding the faithful church in the midst of persecution, do not let go of the gospel. Do not take the gospel lightly. Do not assume the gospel. Take an example from the Supreme Court rulings. Marriage is a gospel issue, ultimately, if you look at Ephesians 5. God has given marriage as the best human picture of the gospel. So to distort marriage is to distort the gospel. So how does the gospel help the Christian? As J.D. mentioned earlier, the gospel is meant to strengthen our life as Christians in Christ. Our obedience should be motivated by the gospel. The more we know the gospel, the more we will know Christ. The more we know Christ, the more we will worship him. The more we worship him, the more we will be changed, and the more we will stand for him. Even a church, a good church, a faithful church, like the church in Philadelphia, needs to be reminded of these things. And so do we, and so do I. How much of your life is influenced by the gospel? How often do you think of the gospel? How can, you, how can we hold on to something that doesn't come to mind? Last section, verse, or section five, reward from Jesus, verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him 
the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. If you notice that all these seven layers to churches, he always ends with a reward to the one who conquers. Is this some special category of Christian or some top tier Christian? I don't think so. Let's go to 1 John, which I mean, provides us great encouragement, right? <laughs> 1 John 5. 1 John 5, 4 and 5. John writes, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? If you're a Christian, you realize that everything you have is by the grace of God, especially your eternal life. It's important to realize that your conquering is not made possible without Christ. He is a true and better conqueror. Let's go to Colossians 2. We're going through a lot of scripture because I think God's words are better than my words. So let's go to Colossians 2. Plus I want to show that my points are backed up by scripture. Colossians 2. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. We'll see that Jesus is the true and better conqueror because of the cross. Verse 13. And you who are dead in your trespassing, the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Also, in John 16, John writes, I have said these things to you, that in me, Jesus says, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Romans 8, 37 we love this verse. It's our calendar verse, I think. <laughs> no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We're only conquerors because of Christ. So what does Jesus want to give to this faithful church? The word says he's gonna give them a pillar, makes them a pillar in the temple of his God. This is a symbol of strength. For a church affected by earthquakes, both physically and socially, a pillar is a symbol of stability. For a church that is seemingly not that influential, Jesus will write names on this pillar, a symbol of belonging. For everything that the church is weak in, Jesus will strengthen because of their faithfulness to him. The one who faithfully went to the cross and suffered the judgment of God the Father that we deserved. The church was faithful. It held, it held on to the gospel and it did, ne, did not deny the name of Jesus when situations were tough. The cultural pressures are rising for the church today. 
We need to be faithful to God by abiding in the faithful one, Jesus Christ. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to churches. Let's pray. Father, we first of all thank you that you are the faithful one, Lord, and we want to follow in your footsteps, Lord, by your grace, motivated by the gospel. We thank you for the testimony of this small but faithful church, and we pray, Lord, that you allow us at Gateway and us as individual believers to be faithful to you no matter what it costs, Lord, no matter what will happen, Lord. We pray to give us strength in today's culture where we may experience more and greater hostility, Lord. So we just pray, give us wisdom. May we be like you, Jesus, who is full of grace and truth in handling such things. Thank you for the cross. We thank you that you have called us your children, that you, um, that we belong to you, Lord. We love you. Jesus, name I pray, amen.